Well, good morning. Who wants to go to heaven? All right, I see a lot of hands, a lot of hands. So we're going to start our time together here at church. We're going to do some groundbreaking work here. All right, so I'm going to give us, what I want to do, if we want to go to heaven, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Now, I, I know our prayers reach the throne room of heaven, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about physically getting there. So I'm going to create some space, get out my phone here. I got a, a chair so I can relax while you guys take the trip. And um, I want you to go to heaven, if you'd be so bold, and then go ahead and come back. I, I'll wait to finish the message until you return. The, the only thing I'm going to ask is that if you need like a really large launch space is to hold that for later. Um, just try, if you can just ascend from where you are, get to heaven, and then, then I'll continue the message, all right? Go. I know, right? You can't do that. Okay, we can't do that. How awkward was that going to be for how long? (laughs) Look, a lot of people are counting on uh, being able to send into joy and light when they die, which is clearly something we just demonstrated we cannot do in life. So my question is, where are we drawing these conclusions from? Where, where are we getting this idea from? I know I'm a different person. My wife reminds me of that frequently. I'm kind of look at things differently. But it's like this. So we are going to count on having a power in death, which is the ascent into light. We're going to count on having a power in death that we don't have in life. So death is going to empower you. I'm sorry, but there's a whole bunch of evidence to the contrary on that one. And there's this popular notion as well that our bodies are something of an anchor for our soul. Like it's somehow keeping us down here. Okay, but if that's just based upon speculation, I would like to speculate right back to you. Okay, well, what if your body is more like a buoy than an anchor? What if your body is like a life jacket? holding you up from your soul descending into darkness and regret. That's depressing, I know. But it's just as reasonable if we're going to speculate on how this is all going to go down. And I think far too many of us, are, ha- our, our thinking is, is faulty. But look, this idea, this idea of ascending into light and to joy isn't a new one, and it's not even our idea. It comes from here. The idea, the originator of that idea is God himself. It comes from the word of God. So what I like to do is take some time and look at what God has to say about getting to heaven. And I'm going to summarize it just like this. It's quite simply. There's a trip we want to take. We want to ascend into light and to joy. God says, okay, but I need to take a trip first. There's a trip, there's a journey that God takes to us. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. All right? So we're going to look at this journey that, God's, that God makes. And we're going to take us right to the Bible, Matthew chapter 1. So if you want to grab your Bible, that's fine. Otherwise, the verses will be on the screen. All right? So we're going to look at this journey. And we're going to look at it from the book of Matthew. So here we go. Matthew 1, 1. Start from there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
and I'll take you right to a commentary on this verse. So this next slide, these are biblical scholars commenting on Matthew 1.1. They say this. Matthew's introduction echoes the language of Genesis. The word rendered genealogy is Greek genesis, begin, origin, birth, genealogy. And this is also the title of the Greek, the Greek translation of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, implying that Matthew's book is a book of beginnings. The book of the genealogy appears to function not only as a heading for the genealogy itself, but also as a, as a title for the entire story to follow. A new beginning with the arrival of Jesus the Messiah and the kingdom of God. Now, when I first came across this, this commentary, I got to tell you, it took me back a little bit. I was very interested. Because if Matthew, this is the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, when we say Gospels too, let me clarify this. Uh, the book that we're looking at is a Gospel. There are four of them in the Bible, and they are all historical counts of the life of Jesus Christ. So what we're looking at when we're looking at Matthew 1.1 is the very first verse of that book. But what, what these commentators are saying is that the author of Matthew is actually referencing the author of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Matthew is referencing, paralleling that. I was like, wow. So in essence, if Matthew is doing that in any way, and it, look, it appears as if he is, what he is essentially saying is this. Jesus is God right off the bat. Now, I have to confess, when I approach a gospel, when I'm reading my Bible, especially the gospel, the historical accounts of Jesus Christ, I have a tendency to look at it in terms of, of a progression or a crescendo that would lead me to a place to draw that conclusion at the end of the book. But what Matthew may very well be telling us is, hey, hey, Jesus is God, right off the bat, right off the bat. So that's what I'd like to do with us today. When I uh, had been studying, reflecting, and thinking about what to teach, I was reading Matthew, read that, um, that commentary about the correlation between Matthew 1.1 and Genesis 1.1, and what I did was this. I said, okay, Michael, clear your head. Get it out of there. We're not going to look at Matthew as a progression that leads me to conclude Jesus is God. We're going to start with Jesus is God right from the get-go and then take a look at the book and see what it says. And so that's what I'd like to do with you here this morning together. We're going to take a little survey of pieces of the book of Matthew. And do you know what it reveals to us? It reveals to us that journey we were talking about, this journey that God makes to us. All right, let's get started. Matthew 1.1. Jesus is God. Okay, what does he mean by God? What does Matthew mean by God? Matthew, the guy who wrote our gospel, is a Jewish person writing to a Jewish audience. These are people that knew their Bibles. So what he's saying is that Jesus is the God of the Bible. So what is that God? Who is he? Well, just a couple verses to get us started looking at that. 1 Samuel 2, no one is holy like the Lord. From Exodus 3, 4, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty. From Psalm 115, but our God is in heaven and he does what he pleases. All right, 
So I can't resist putting up this next slide. If this isn't your thing, just relax. It'll be over soon. Uh, but it is a, as a, a quote by a pastor who's long gone, and he's reflecting and thinking about the greatness and the highness of God. I kind of like this kind of thing, so we're going to go forward with it. Here is Charles Spurgeon on the greatness or the highness of God. Now, though a spirit from the upper world should come to you to tell you of the riches of Jesus, he could not do it. Gabriel, in thy flights, thou hast mounted higher than my imagination dares to follow thee, but thou hast never gained the summit of the throne of God. It would be hard. We could spend all day here talking about how high and how great and how lofty this God is. It is beyond our comprehension. Matthew is saying Jesus is that God. Jesus is holy. Jesus is everlasting. Jesus is long-suffering. Jesus is abounding in goodness and truth, merciful and forgiving. And he is in heaven. All right, are you ready for the journey? Let's look where God goes here. Jesus is God, the God of the Bible, going back to Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, I put that little piece of our commentary on the bottom to remind us that that word genealogy is the word Genesis. Okay, so... Does God genesis from people? Does God originate from people? Does he come from them? No. No. So what's going on here? Well, first, first things Matthew is doing is he's connecting Jesus to the promises of a coming Messiah. In the Old Testament, in history past, God had spoken to his people through prophets in many ways, and he told them a Messiah is coming, a Savior is coming. And many times he did that. He did that by telling them whose child they would be, what family tree they would come from. So the first thing Matthew is doing is making sure that we all understand that this Jesus is connected and fulfills all of those prophecies and promises. He's related to all these people. All right? So that's the first thing he's doing. But remember I want to come at this book with the premise that this is God we're talking about. This is this Jesus. So there is something just as striking about this genealogy as the connection to the promised Messiah, something just as striking. Now, if you've been at New Hope for a little while, you've heard Pastor Mark, the, our normal teaching pastor. Uh, he'll be here back here next week. He teaches here most of the time, and he says something that I really like. He says this, one of the best things, one of the best pieces of evidence that the Bible is real is that it's real. Like, it's real about the people that it talks about. It's real. Its characters are all totally human, all right? Um, so look at the people listed here in this genealogy, all right? Now, these are the patriarchs. That's a kind of a churchy word, I guess. These are the uh, early people in the book of the early part of the Bible, all right? These are where God's people come from. But in a certain way here, New Hope, when you look at these names on this list, this family you're looking at, this family is something of a train wreck. This family is something of a train wreck. All right, Abraham, first name on the list. In Genesis 16, we hear of a story where Gen uh, uh, Abraham, in Genesis 16, conceives a child with um, one of his wife's employees 
at his wife's urging. Now, just before that incident happened, okay, God had pointedly and specifically told Abraham he was going to have a child. And then Abraham goes and does that. That doesn't end well. That doesn't end well. That creates a mess. The next name on the list, Isaac. Well, Isaac learned a little trick from dad. Learned a little trick from dad, Abraham. And Isaac did this. Isaac is in a situation where, look, if you're ever fearful that men might hurt you to get to your wife, you should just tell them she's your sister and then let them have her. All right? Is that a little shocking for all of us? I understand. Um, And I am summarizing old stories in the Bible in a few sentences. I understand that. And so I'm taking some liberties, and I understand that there are are cultural nuances into the stories I'm repeating to you, okay? But look, truthfully, I think sometimes we give these guys a pass too much, all right? I've heard people teach on the stories of of our patriarchs here, and they kind of gloss over these stories um, because they live and they're surrounded by corruption and sin, Well, I just ask anybody to point out for me in here where God says it's okay for us to make poor decisions and to and to do horrible things just because we're surrounded by it. That's it's not in there. Little, I'll give you the answer to that question. Okay, it's not in there. Let's keep going. Oh, but all right, Jacob. I had more notes, but we're we're all depressed enough, so we're moving on. (laughs) Jacob. Jacob, in uh, Genesis 27, we read about how Jacob deceived his father and blackmailed his brother to get the family inheritance. So think family trust fund fully and legally irreversibly transferred into another relative's account. And that relative has no intention of giving it back. And then there's Judah and Tamar. I put the then there's in there because I'm not even getting into the mess that's Judah and Tamar right now, okay? Um, But trust me, the sin that was in Abraham that went down to Isaac, that went down to Jacob, definitely reared its head in the life of Judah. And we could go on with this genealogy, and I won't. <laughs> That's enough. We're done. Come down. All right, so, but there are, you know, there are murderers, there are adulterers, there are cheaters, there are liars, there are thieves in this genealogy. God does not genesis from these people, does he? No. No, he doesn't. It's okay, he doesn't. But you know what he is doing? God is becoming one of them. God is becoming one of us. God is saying, these are my people. And that, that's what makes these patriarchs special, by the way. What makes them special is their faith in God and what God made them. That's what makes them special, not in how well they behaved. The Old Testament, if you've ever read it, is not a story of good behavior. So we, we ascend, we, we yearn to ascend to light and to joy. Jesus descends to be associated with that. God now has a more messed up family than you do. Than you do. So in our book of Matthew, our gospel, the story of Jesus, we looked at the first part of the book and said, you know what? He's referencing Genesis 1.1. Jesus is God. We started our book. We looked at the genealogy. We saw the patriarchs, but we also saw that these guys didn't behave all the time. 
we realize that God is becoming one of us. He's associating with us. But we need to take a little break from our journey, the journey God's taking, and then we, we need to look a little bit at this understanding, this theology of sin. Because when we talk about people messing up, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about sin. So we're going to put our journey on pause, we're going to go over here, and we're going to look at sin. So what does the Bible have to say about sin? Well, um, the first thing I want to remind you and, and talk about is this. The proper understanding of sin should not leave you down. I'm not interested in having us all walk out of here all hunchback. So understanding the theology of sin should not leave you down. And I'm sure maybe some of you have heard it taught that way. I'm not going to do that. All right? First. But having a weak understanding of sin is a problem. And I'm going to demonstrate that for you. Having a weak or misunderstood theology of sin is kind of like being afraid of falling out of your pew. It's like being afraid of falling out of your pew. It could happen. It could hurt. And then I come along and hand you a parachute. Who cares? I've never actually even seen a parachute. All right. So instead of that, I take all of you people and we load up into the back of an AC-130 plane with the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division and we fly up to 10,000 feet up in the air and we're all smiling, wondering what kind of we doing. And I hit the, the button and the door of the plane lower starts to lower down. Now we're afraid to fall too. It could happen. It could hurt. And I hand you a parachute then. Do you see what I'm getting at here? So understanding sin is important. And it's also important understanding worship, by the way. If you're new here, I'm the worship pastor, so I normally sing in songs. But understanding sin helps understand worship because how, how strong is your song for the guy who saves you from falling out of your pew? How willing are you to sing for that guy? Or how willing are you to stand up, raise your hand, sing, clap, and make a joyful noise from the guy who saved you from falling into hell? That song is a little stronger, isn't it? Isn't it? So we're going to go to the Bible, and we're going to take a look, another look at sin, reminding ourselves that taking a look at sin is not going to leave us down. It's not going to leave us down. We're going to take a couple principles out of the book of Romans, uh, the book of Romans in your Bible. The book of Romans, look, it's very rich, it's very theological, so prepare your cranium. I'm going to read a couple verses here, and then we're going to draw out a couple things about what sin is, what's going on here with this sin, and wrap our brains around it, and then we're going to get back to the journey. So here we go, Uh, Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served 
the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Out of this text, we can draw three things about sin. Okay, three things. One, sin is the suppression of the truth of God. Sin is the suppression of the truth of God. Sin is the exchange of the truth of God for a lie. Okay? And sin is worshiping and serving created things. All right? We're going to save number three for some other day, or we'll get to that. But these first two are really related, and they give us some insight that I want us to, to consider here for a few minutes. The suppression of truth of God, the exchange of truth for a lie. This is how sin works. This is how sin works. Behind most, if not all, of our failures is at first a deception, at first a lie. Sin is suppressing the truth that God is all we need him to be for total fulfillment and joy. And don't forget this. Deception is the primary tool of your number one enemy, Satan. All right, let me help us understand this. I might interpret my passions, my proclivities, my chasing after things, the greed, the addiction, the pleasure, whatever you want to call it. I might be chasing after this thing because I believe more of these things is going to satisfy me. All right? That's the deception right there. I believe that it might, my sin is an outworking of my passion for more things, but my passion more for more things is at first a deception that those things are going to satisfy me. Do you see how this works? So it works the other way too. So if, if you're hurting yourself with your behavior, you may be believing a lie. You may be believing that you're unlovable. You may be, be believing that you're beyond redemption. You may be, be believing that you don't have a purpose for your life. These are all lies. We buy into them all the time. So the deception comes first, we believe the lie, and then we move on into sin. I want to take you to one of my favorite passages of the Bible, Psalm 16, all right? Psalm 16. I've edited a little bit to help with the thrust of the verse, but look. Sin is suppressing the truth that God is all we need for total fulfillment and joy. Look. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. I will not take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He's my sustenance. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Sounds like a song. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I encourage you to test this in your Bible's new hope. The deepest, most complete satisfaction of your soul begins and ends in God. The deepest, most satisfaction for your soul begins and ends in God. God intends for you to find your all in him. Sin is the deception that this isn't so. God intends for you to find your all in him. Sin is the deception that this isn't so. I assure you, God is your best shot at everything. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. 
Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not. Don't forget. Don't forget all of his benefits. He forgives your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And who satisfies you with good. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Sin is deception that God is not all you need. Second thing about sin. We're going to draw this idea out of uh, a little further in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. If you hang out with churchy people enough, you'll hear this one. We talk about this one. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Simple and to the point, that verse stands all by itself. Doesn't need a lot of explanation. But what I do want to do is take a look at that word sin. Remember, the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in different languages. Every once in a while, it pays for us to look at that original language. So just one word, just the word sin. It's the word that's most frequently used in your Bible to use that word sin. So chances are pretty good. You're reading through your Bible. You see the word sin. You're reading this word. To miss the mark. It's to miss the mark. To err, sin, trespass. Sin is missing the mark. Look, there is a target. There is perfection. That's important. It exists. Holiness exists. And we don't hit it. We don't measure up. Now, if you dare hang on to this idea of right and wrong, if you dare hang on to this idea, I know it's pretty unpopular, The world is literally tripping over themselves trying to invent a believable ideology that does away with right and wrong, okay? That is a problem. But if we, me, I'm hanging on to right and wrong, it doesn't take too long for me to figure out that I'm not measuring up, I'm not hitting that mark. And we don't even need the idea of perfection to understand this about ourselves, okay? We can set perfection aside. We can debate and argue perfection all day long. Let's not. Let's just set it aside. Because look, we don't measure up to the moralities that that we create, that we desire for our own lives. We don't even measure up to those, and I'll prove it for you. Ready? So in this intimate setting, I would just like to confess something to you, if that's all right, which is this. I've lied, and I think lying is wrong. I think lying is wrong. I've wronged people. That ain't right. That ain't right. So I fall short of the right and wrong that I apply to myself. So we all fall short of the glory of God. And we've all missed this mark. That's this idea of sin. Okay? We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We fall short of the mark. This is what we saw in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. This is what Jesus is identifying with when he comes down to us and becomes part of the human race, part of the human family. Jesus is identifying with this, with sin. All right, we're going to go back to our journey now. Are you with me? Okay, we know a little bit about sin. Let's go back. Let's see where Jesus is going here. He's come down. We've learned that he's got a pretty messed up family just like ours, and now we've got to see where he goes from here. All right, so we're going to skip forward to Matthew 3, and we're going to look at the next step in Jesus' journey here. And uh, this is a story, so I need to give you a little background about the story. There are two people in our story. There is John, and that's John the Baptist, and then there's Jesus. 
John lived during the time of Jesus. He was out in the wilderness. He was by a river. And the whole nation was going out to him. He was calling them to repentance. He was saying, nation of Israel, people of God, come, repent, turn, change your ways. Turn back to God. That's what he was doing. And people would come out to him and he would baptize them. And they would do that for their forgiveness for, as, as a token, as a symbol of the repentance of their sin. All right? And Jesus goes out there to John by the river. Here we go. So Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and, and you do come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Well, well, do you know what God is doing here? God just voluntarily identified himself with our sin, with my sin and yours. In other words, this just got personal. Jesus is sinless still, don't get me wrong, but this identifying that God is doing, this is different. This is not the, uh, the sin of a, of a patriarch long gone. This isn't the sin of a distant family member. This isn't the kind of sin that you point at in the news. Jesus is identifying himself with every regret, cringe moment of our lives, of our lives. God has now journeyed into our sin. He has allowed himself to be baptized a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin he doesn't have. He doesn't have. J.I. Packer in his book, The Incomparable, Incomparable Christ, explains it like this. By his baptism, Jesus, Jesus allies himself with the race he had come to redeem, the preliminary and necessary step to become the sinner's substitute. It signified his complete dedication of himself to be the world's sin bearer yielding himself without reserve to his Father's will, even though it involved a cross. It was the public exhibition of his willingness to assume the burden of sin of the whole race. All right, so allow me to make an application here. Jesus has come and readily identified himself with his people and now he's gone out into a river, allowed himself to be baptized with his people, identifying himself with their sin. He's with us. Did you get that? God is with us. He doesn't always fix our messes, but he endures them with us. He's right where you need him. Did you get that? God Almighty. Now, this is something people outside the faith, outside the church don't understand, and I'd love to give them some credit for this, but they just don't get it. They don't get that Jesus hurts with us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So I will gladly testify, okay, when we're going through it, and we all do, that knowing that God is with you is better than every happy thought or every wispy cloud that you imagine. This is better. This is better. This is God with you. Jesus is this out-of-bounds idea that God endures with you. He is your strength and your hope. 
He's your comfort and your power. And this world can't take him from you. He doesn't answer to it. He's above it. He's beyond it. And in his words, he overcame it. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. God is with you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even if I should be walking through the very valley of the shadow of death, notice God isn't building a bridge over it. Even if I should be walking through the very valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You want to say this with me? For you are with me. You are with me. God is with us. And in being with us, he, admit, he has made us his people. He has made us his people. So that means this. If we're God's people, we're not just his creation. We're not just something that he made. And, and we're not just a, like an artwork, a masterpiece, although we are in that sense. We are like his, like, we're like his people. Peeps. I got permission to say that word. I don't know if did it work. I don't know. All right, so I'm not going to do the homies one. Oh, I just said it. All right, so, but do, do you, does this, God, remember we said holy, long-suffering, just, forever, in heaven, is become us. You, new hope. You, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, look at this, called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Remember, Remember how we started? There it is. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this I want to sum up this point. And and, uh, God gave me this, imagery this week as I was studying, preparing for this with you, and it's this. It's this image that we have, and it's great. God is high. He's exalted. He's in, he's in light. He has, remember last week, Pastor Mark, he's got that sea of glass by his feet. He's got the ring, the rainbow behind his throne. He's got the creature shouting out. We're not going to do the holy, holy, holy thing, but you get the idea. God, he's up there. He's high, and he's perfect. And he's powerful, and he thunders. Fire goes out from his throne. But listen to me. Just as sure as he is there, just as sure as he is there, he's right there next to you with his arm around you. That is the mind-blowing truth of God with you. Don't miss that. And you know what? Don't reduce Jesus either. Don't make him buddy Jesus. This is God identifying with us as sinners. In Jesus' journey so far, look, God identified himself as being one of his people, mess included. God identified himself with our sin, cringe included. We learned that from the baptism. Not exactly where you expect God to be, but that's where we need him. Journey's not over. So he identifying with all this sin, what, what happens here? He goes to the cross. He goes to the cross. Well, what is that? Well, a couple, 
quick illustration, we'll go back to the Bible. But I was kind of a rambunctious kid, not too bad. My brother was worse, but <laughs> oh, this is, hi, James. But you ever get caught doing something? You get caught, you're busted. And, but you're the only one that gets caught. Your buddies escape, all right? When you go to face the music, are your buddies all eager? Yeah, yeah, I was there. I know I'm gonna call me, but I was there. No one does that. Or how about the friend of yours who wasn't even with you when you did the naughty thing coming up and saying, no, 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 that was me, that was me. That doesn't happen. Okay, so look, this is a message and I hemmed and hawed about whether to do this next part with you, but you know what? We're gonna let it rip, all right? It won't last long, but I'm gonna invite you to do this with me. Just take a few minutes and then we'll move on and finish up. I want you to think about something that you've done wrong. Jesus made it personal, so I don't mind making it personal. I want you to think about something you've done wrong, something sinful, something hurtful. But go ahead, think of something and put it in your mind. You got it? Jesus, having entered into his creation and identifying himself as one of us, that thing that you have on your mind right now, that thing, on the cross, Jesus is saying to God the Father, that was me, Dad. That was me. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Lift, lift, right? We're done. Lift, look. You know what he appeared in order to take away sins. We say take away sins a lot in church, right? You hear that all the time. Churchy people, do we say take away sins? Don't forget that implies movement. That implies a journey, a journey that God took on our behalf to take away our sins from us. The journey God took led him to the cross. Our messed up past, our poor decisions, he took it to the cross and then he suffered God's punishment for us on our behalf. If this isn't God where we need him, I don't know what is. We're eager to ascend the joy into light. Who wouldn't want to do that? But, but God turns around and says, okay, great, come on up. First, you have to be sinless. Ah! But what does he do? He takes the sin away for us. But he didn't, he didn't die. He didn't die, stay dead either. He rose again. So imagine this now. This God, identify with your sin. Sin of your past, sin of your wreck. He identifies with the sin, the sin that you still struggle with right now. He bundles it all up, puts it on his own shoulders, dies on the cross, gets buried in a tomb, walks out three days later. Where'd the sin go? The answer is it's gone. It's gone. It's gone. So Jesus has removed, he's taken away our sin from us before we even knew we needed him to. Jesus removed the shackles of your sin before you knew they were there. And this is the Jesus that is with you now. This is the Jesus that is with you now. The victorious, authoritative, conqueror of death, right hand seated, Holy Spirit sending, church leading, Jesus, risen and forever alive to walk with you. Story's not done. Last piece of this journey, and then we'll wrap up. We're gonna go to Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one. Little background to this story, Jesus has died, he's resurrected, and he has asked his disciples to meet him on the side of a mountain, and they say, sure, boss, 
and they're excited. He's alive, and he's meeting them, and this is what he says to them, and this is what happens. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Well, gosh dang it, there it is. We all rose our hands when I began with you this morning, didn't we? We all wanted to get to heaven. We all wanted that ascent. There is one who has already done it. There is everlasting light. There is everlasting joy. There is glory to be enjoyed forever. There is, and his name is Jesus. God and man, immeasurable yet our friend, alive forever, a king. If he's a king, and he is, if he's alive, and he is, that means he is able to lead you wherever you go. He's able to save you from wherever you've been, and he's able to redeem you out of whatever is hurting you. God came to be among us. He identified with our sin, the sin we inherited, and the sin we bring to the table ourselves. He went where we couldn't go. He went to the cross, and he took away our sin. And now he goes with you wherever life leads, through every good time and bad. He sits on a throne that cannot be shaken, and he awaits in heaven for you to reward you with pleasures forevermore. This is God where you need him. Let's pray. God, having looked at these things from your word, what we want for you to do for us is to lift our spirits to help us to see the goodness and the beauty and the joy that is set before us for what you have done for us. God, that you, that you could set us free in a way that no one else could, that you could remove pain in ways that no one else can, that you would descend, identify with us. We rejoice that we are your people. And in fact, Lord, I pray, would you empower the song of these people here? Empower our song as, as people freed, people ready and willing to live for you every area of our lives. Jesus, you are truly worthy of that. So God, I ask by your spirit that you give clarity where things might have been unclear and uh, you give strength where uh, things might have been weak. So God, we praise you and thank you and look forward to continuing to live for you and to you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. It's been good to be with you, New Hope. Have a great week.